We're going to continue with the subject, the way of life, the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus raises the bar on love. And uh, I want to start by us reading what is a very uh, challenging key passage in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 30, of Matthew 5, verses 38 to 48. And it will come up on the screen for you, so you can see it in front of you unless you want to use your own Bible, but I will, so I don't get crick in my neck. Okay. So I'm going to read it to you. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. This is Jesus speaking, of course. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Or are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. John Stott is uh, an older writer. He's dead now. Uh, More of my era, I suppose. I remember always finding his commentaries very helpful. And John Stott says this about these verses we've just read. These verses bring us to the highest point of the Sermon on the Mount, for which it is both most admired and most resented, namely the attitude of total love which Christ calls us to show towards one who is evil, verse 39, and our enemies, verse verse 44. Nowhere is the challenge of the sermon greater, nowhere is is the distinctiveness of the Christian counterculture more obvious? Nowhere is our need of the power of the Holy Spirit more compelling. <laughs> He's right. And as we, before we get into the detail and try and find what God's saying to us this morning, I do want to make a few general comments and deal with what I think are some misunderstandings concerning these verses particularly, but actually concerning the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. And when I say misunderstandings, this, these wonderful passages, in a wonderful way, they're, they're part of Christian heritage, Western civilization. You could add all sorts of things there. And people like Tolstoy and Gandhi have taken them up and used them and done all sorts of things with them. Tolstoy advocating a sort of anarchist worldview, Gandhi all his, built it in with some of his Hinduism and all the rest of it. And we need to Get rid of some of that and think, well, what is going on in this passage? Let me deal with a few misunderstandings. Jesus is not reforming the legal code. These verses are not instructions for nations or for law keepers. Jesus is not prohibiting the use of force by governments, police and military when combating evil. Elsewhere in the Bible, There are clear instructions that we are to obey authorities. The authorities are given by God to exercise their power in restraining evil in a fallen world. Now, those authorities are answerable to God for how they use that power, and he will judge them for it, but they are a provision of God to restrain evil in society and nations. This is not a new set of rules that countries should try 
and live by. If we're in an unsaved nation, which we always are, actually, uh, nations uh, are not Christian, only individuals, people in them, then we need to look at other passages of Scripture to understand how we're meant to behave. This teaching is focused on individual conduct. And it's a response that one individual would have to another that is really in mind. But we can go a bit further than that and say this teaching is not primarily for anyone and everyone. It's actually for those who follow Jesus. It's for children of the kingdom. It's for those who know their heavenly father. Now, that's not to say that the principles set out in the Sermon on the Mount, and this part particularly, would not be very beneficial as principles to try and be guided by in any behaviour. They would, they would help reduce a lot of antagonism if people, just like the Ten Commandments do, if you take them seriously, they are good things and God has put them there to help restrain evil in one level. But actually, they are prime, particularly this, the prime purpose is not that like, this is something you can all do and once you do it, you'll have an ideal society. And we'll see as we go through the morning that that's just never going to happen. What, that's not the way we approach this. Not just a lot of people trying to obey it. That's the key, and we'll see it later. These are aimed, these verses are spoken to, taught at, aimed at the followers of Jesus, the Christ followers, those who claim to be his people. So as Christians, and most of us perhaps in this room are, if you're not, you can be by the end of the morning, but as Christians, this is a pretty challenging passage. And in a funny way, when we take it out of the big picture thing, which it can be misused in, begins to have its full impact on our lives. J.C. Ryle, who's another old writer I like, he's um, older still than John Stott by a long way. He's a Victorian bishop who actually was a vicar in Winchester once. His church was, I don't know the name of it, that one on um, Kingsgate, is it? The one that's now a luxury flats with the thing um, just near the cinema. That's where J.C. Ryle started as a vicar. But actually, he ended up as a bishop. And he wrote this about these verses. This calls for solemn reflection, a lovely picture of Christians as they ought to be. We cannot look at it without painful feelings. We must all admit that it differs widely from Christians as they are. And we have to say, "Mm," bit of a crunch there. So how are we going to, what are we going to do with it? How are we going to learn? Well, this morning I want to talk, like I like to do really, I want to pose Three simple questions and and unpack them. I want to ask, what kind of love is this? Is there anything special about you? And how can this be possible? So let's start off with what kind of love is this? What Jesus is saying in these verses is is really startling. I mean, it's, it's almost shocking. In verses 38 to 44, he covers things like when you're insulted, when your rights are violated, which is sort of to do with being made to take a thing a mile that's the Roman soldiers would impose that on people at a whim when your possessions are asked for and even your enemies are out to hurt you and as Jesus was deals with these he's giving us instructions that at the very least are counterintuitive they're actually unnatural they are virtually unnatural basically Jesus is saying don't retaliate to insults in fact absorb them without complaint He's saying, don't demand your rights, even when they are blatantly infringed. Don't fight your corner. Don't demand your rights. Understand that it is more important that you show mercy than that mercy shown to you. 
and be generous with your possessions to the point of vulnerability and potential loss. And show love to your enemies and do them good wherever possible. I mean, think, this isn't natural. <laughs> that is the challenge. These are not rules. They're not rules that we've got to try and live by. They are examples of radical love. They are examples of a radical love. But what kind of love are we talking about? Now, there is, and there are a number of loves. There, are, there is family love, familial love. There is the parent love for a child. We remember it today, it's Father's Day. So there's a father's love for his child, a mother's love for a child. They're very powerful, sacrificial emotions. And you can see lots of If you're a parent, unless you're... I mean, most parents, even in our fallen state, are pretty sacrificial for our kids. And there's something that drives us in, in, in parental love. And thankfully, there is some response often to the parents. And that's what Father's Day is about, Mother's Day, isn't it? And thankfully, it's there. And we've got our children all grown up. And sometimes one of our slightly more rebellious ones said to us, cool, I understand what it was like when you were a parent. Now she's got her own. Um, she said, I realise how much you... <laughs> da, 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 da. And that's quite nice to hear sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, so there's a response back. But that's not the sort of love being talked about here. There is also a deep emotional romantic love that's called out by attraction and admiration for others what the Greeks called eros, sort of tied in with sexual attraction, where you fall in love with someone. And that can lead to sacrifice. That can lead to all sorts of crazy things that you give up yourself in order for your beloved. There's phileo, which is the Greek word for good friendship, bonding with a good friend who you, again, can maybe sacrifice for. It happens in the armed forces. Lay down your life for your brother. Now, these things are honourable, but this is not that order. You don't fall in love with your enemies... You don't bond with those who are beating you up and hurting you and nasty to you. This is out of a different level altogether. Sometimes there's a sort of love based on a shared interest or a common cause. A bit similar, I suppose, to the filio one, where you, where you together sort of are working for something. But again, this is nothing like this. These people are not all on the same page, going the same way. It's those going the opposite way, and you still love them. This is a love that wills the good of and seeks the best for your enemy, and thus refuses to retaliate when something unkind is done to you. Doesn't seek revenge. In fact, it's a love that seeks to find a way, even in a bad situation, of doing a transforming act of kindness. Is that I think? So it's an active love that even in a bad situation looks for a transforming act of kindness towards the one who is being unkind to you. What kind of love is this? This is God's kind of love. It's the sort of love God shows. It's the love that Jesus shows. It's Jesus' kind of love. Now, the Bible, the Greek, did have a word for this. Their highest form of love was agape. Many of you probably heard the word. That was the highest form of love. And it meant unmerited, unwavering, sacrificial love for another. Now, what's interesting is that Greek word was rarely used before Jesus and Christians arrived. It was there, but all the other words were used a lot more. I, I, you can speculate why, because it, it seemed very unrealistic, I guess, and idealistic. But Jesus and the church, the New Testament, brings that word centre stage. So this is what real love is. It's agape. And this is how it works. And it's all based on this is the sort of love God shows all of us. 
It really, really is. The Bible declares that God's nature is agape love. That is the very character of God. That he does everything ultimately rooted by a love motivation. Uh, whatever you want to get into the detail, this is the truth. That all that is made and his creation right through re- all the realms of God's activity, there is a fundamental drive of selfless love, agape love. He didn't have to do any of it. And you can have your philosophical questions, but the Bible would say strongly, and I believe we get to in a moment, it's proved in other, other areas that God is fundamentally a God of love, and that's his motivation. Now, the area that most proves it is the giving of his son Jesus for our sin and failure, a mess, to totally remove it and change it. It really is a huge thing that we were all outside of God, enemies of God in one way or another. We didn't care about it. We, didn't. we failed by every stand. We failed by the Ten Commandments, let alone the Sermon on the Mount. We're way short of anything that we should be. And yet God loved us and sent his son to die for us. Let's put up the screen with three quick verses that summarize it. Just look at them and enjoy them for a moment. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Just that very well-known one. It's awesome. God so loved the world of men and women that he gave his son so that whoever, and you could be one of those whoever's if you're not already, believes in Jesus, puts their faith in Jesus, will not perish but have eternal life and live with God forever. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't care about God. He cared about us. And that's when Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the next one as well. 1 John, is it 4 9? This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the revolutionary aspect of God's love is that it is a love which springs from the nature of the donor, not the recipient. Sorry, Matt, you're on the front row. It's a bad place to sit with me. So Matt doesn't have to do anything at all for me to love him because the love comes from who I am and what I am, not what he is. So he's not earning it. He's not, I'm not responding to something nice in him. I'm not even particularly... There's no tit-for-tat element. There's nothing he has to do. The love comes from who I am, and it's unconditional towards him, whatever he's like and whoever he is. Now, that is God's love, and it's the reality of God's love. And that agape love, that sort of love, is what God wants to do with us. And already, I hope, you're going to need to keep concentrating, but I hope you're getting something. Because what all the human love is, is in some degree, you know, parent, child, friend, do do do. If I let me down, well, it'll compromise it, do do do. I may be able to sacrifice my life for my mates in the army, but, you know, there's also, but ultimately, it is not this deep. So the key is we have got to somehow enter God's territory of love, where it's what's in us that brings out the love, not, what, not what's in the recipient. And so that is where we're going to go. Now, let's move on to the next question. We've talked about what kind of love it is. The next question, there's three of these. Is there something, is there anything special about you? <laughs> now, I'm asking this of myself as well, right? And this question is only for those who claim to be Christians. 
If you claim to be a follower of Jesus and you believe that he's your Lord and Saviour, you've put your faith in him, then this question is for you and me. Is there anything special about you? Christians are meant to be different to the rest of people. They're meant to be special. They are meant to be people who can love beyond the natural, who love beyond the ordinary balance of life, which does have its love element, as we've already said. That is what we are called to be. And there's a challenge in this, which I think is very worthwhile. I like old writers, you'll probably gather that. Matthew Henry wrote a commentary nearly 400 years ago. He's an old Puritan writer. When he writes on these verses, this is what he says. Here we are. The next one, thank you. It is a serious question and one which we should frequently put to ourselves. This is for all of you if you're a Christian. What do we more than others? What excelling thing do we do? Wherein do we live above the rate of the children of this world? Now, I'm uncomfortable with the question, and I should be. And, so, and he's saying, right, what, how are you different from anybody else then? He said, in his good old Puritan godly way, it's a good godly writer, if you ever get a Matthew Henry commentary, it's worth having. And it's saying, when we read these, we need to seriously, you know, is this, what, what are we different from other people? What, what do we more than others? <laughs> and that's a good reflective question. But actually, we are meant to be beyond and above those who are around us. I don't mean above in an arrogant way, hasten to say, but we are meant to live at a different level, march to a different tune to the world around us. Now, Paul puts it in quite an interesting way in 1 Corinthians 3, and he's writing to a bunch of Christians who are not doing well. So that is recognised. Uh, Christians don't always do as well as they should. Now, let's watch or listen to what he writes, and I'm going to read it carefully, and I want just to use it as a probe for all of us. So Paul writes, brothers and sisters, remember he's writing to Christians, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not mere human beings? Now, this is a modern translation, but it's accurate, because that's what he means. In the old translation, he says, are you acting like mere men? But it's a generic word. He's saying what this says. Are you not mere human beings? Are you not acting like mere men? Let's just pause. <laughs> you can say, that's the Bible, yeah, yeah. I want to wake up. If you are a Christian, you are more than a mere human being. Pardon? You are. You're a new creation in Christ. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You having, uh, have a Holy Spirit in you, and he's renewing your mind. You are living now, but you're also a creature of the future, the new heavens and the new earth. You are being changed from one degree of glory to another. You're not a mere human being. Don't behave like one. <laughs> you're not. You're, a su you're not Superman, but you're a different. I don't know what words to use. These are good words. You are not. This is for your faith. And it's truth. So Paul's basically saying, what are you doing acting like everybody else? Look at you. You're arguing with each other. There's party spirit. There's division. There's pride. But you're not mere human beings. You're not living out the spirit. 
who live by the Spirit. You're just living as though that doesn't count for anything. And it does count for something. It is a truth. You are different. The children of God's kingdom, the followers of Jesus, are meant to be and are. It's not just meant to be. It's not a law that you've got to do it. You are different. That's the whole point. You're not what you once were. You're beyond being just mere human being. Martin Lloyd-Jones, also dead. They're always good when they're dead. He says this. Yeah, he's an, a, a writer from the 50s and 60s. Look at this. The Christian is essentially a unique and special kind of person. The Christian is meant to be positively like God and like Christ. <laughs> Talk about that over lunch. But it's right, isn't it? The Christian is essentially a unique and special kind of person. The Christian is meant to be positively like God and like Christ. <laughs> that is the reality. I mean, we need to raise our sights and enjoy this. This is not ultimately about duty. This is a rise of faith with its challenge, I don't hasten to say, but it's a very different order to what you mechanically can think when you first come to this if you're not careful. So we need to now really explore the third question. How can this be possible? Because if we don't understand this properly, we will be in danger of a number of mistakes. We will either look at the Sermon on the Mount and these sort of verses and end up in despair and permanent condemnation. How can I love my enemies? I, bleh, I find it difficult enough to love my mum. You know, how can I? How am I? Bleh, and uh, you know, how do I give everything to anybody who asks me? How do I? How do I turn the other cheek? Oh, blah, blah, blah. you know, if this is we're trying to, if we don't get this right, if we just get this as a, as rules, we will end in despair. Or we can, which is sort of also possible, sort of be a bit glib about it all. Oh, this is good. Yeah, 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 I like this. Yeah, yeah. And you think your life is hundred miles from this. You're living in unreality, and the world will think we're gross hypocrites. What about the Sermon on the Mount then? <laughs> what about loving your enemies? Oh, well, that's good. Yeah, that's a good theory. Yeah. Uh, but but whoa, 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 whoa. it's not just theory. Jesus is writing to people who know their heavenly father. Or he is not writing, he's speaking. Jesus didn't write anything. He's speaking out to his followers, to his disciples. We have got to dig into this and use a little bit of logic. So let's do that. Let's get the key verse, well, not the key verse, but the last verse that we've just read. Put it up again, thank you. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is is perfect. Right? Got that? Okay, you can do that, can't you? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Whew. What does that mean? I mean, some commentators duck and weave around this. Probably they sort of say perfect means complete or mature or whole. Yeah, fine. But basically, it's still saying be like God. That's what it's saying. And it's not the only place it says it. If you uh, look at 1 Peter, which we'll put up as well, 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16 say this, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Which is about the same as what we just read. So be holy in all you do, Jim. Got it? Be holy in all you do. Get that clear. <laughs> right. Let's, let's just think about it. Let me use an illustration which, if you've done the foundation course, you might be familiar with, but I think it's a good one, and I want you to hear it again. If an eagle said to a pig, 
fly because I fly, what would you make of that? So you've got this eagle, you'll be the pig, all right, sorry about that. <laughs> this eagle comes to a pig and says, fly because I can fly. Well, that's either cruelty and sadism or it's pure, pure bonkers, isn't it? It's mad. How can an eagle say... Now, in the context we're talking about, forgive me, you're pigs and God's an eagle, and I'm a pig. So how, how are we to fly because I... Be holy because I'm holy. Be perfect. Bill, be perfect. I'm your Heavenly Father's perfect. You make sure you're perfect as well. What are we talking about? How on earth do we handle this? If this is a new standard of rules, then it is crazy. And it's a mockery. And it leaves us condemned. It's, it's, it's not going to be approached that way. There's something much greater here, much more radical and much more wonderful, actually. But it does have a challenge. But it's about what Jesus has done for us, the new covenant, all that Jesus has achieved through his death, resurrection, ascension, sending the Holy Spirit, the whole thing of the gospel. The full gospel is behind this. And you need to be clear about it and understand it in its right context of all that Jesus is doing and brought in. Now, let me be very clear, because some of you, if you're not a Christian here today, you could already think, boy, this sounds like these guys are really holier than thou. We're not. Let me say about a Christian. A real Christian is someone who has seen themselves as utterly hopeless and helpless before God. You know you're a pig, and you acknowledge it. I'm no way I'm going to be an eagle. I haven't even got one feather. I am never going to be able to do these things. Now, that, that's, you actually start understanding re, the reality of where you stand before a holy God. There is no way. If you did everything right from now on, you've got a lifetime of wrong behind you anyway. And, you know, what, what, how are you going to earn the favour of a holy God? How are you going to live up to his standards? Yeah, I think I can try that, being perfect. Well, there's something wrong with you if you think that. And you need to wake up to the reality. Know your own heart. In my flesh dwells no good thing. Now, that's not meaning you don't do good things. Everybody's capable of doing good things. But there is a sort of poison in the whole system. That even when you do good things, they're quite often a bit tainted with pride or selfish motives. Let alone the bad things that are clearly bad. <laughs> the lusts and the lies and the rest of it. And the envy. We are a long way from holy. And a Christian is someone who starts off realising that I can't even keep the Ten Commandments, let alone this. I, you know, don't covet, right? <laughs> you know, don't lie, right? Don't murder. Oh, yeah, I can probably do that. But, but you, you know, there is a real problem, and a Christian has recognised it. I need God's forgiveness. I need his mercy. I need a solution from outside myself. I need a saviour. <laughs> And you've got one, Jesus Christ. God so loved the world, he came to die for you and for your sins. He bore your sins in his body on the cross. Paul says, Jesus is the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And a Christian is someone who gets to that point. And you can join that this morning. Everyone can personally say, he loved me and he gave himself for me. I love the personal nature of that. I love it. In Galatians 2.20. And, and it, you could say, but you have to start with that point. You, that's where it all starts. That we turn to God and say, oh, God, forgive me. Oh, God, cleanse me. Save me. Make me new. Help me. Do something. I cry out for your mercy. 
That's where we start. And we find that God forgives us and cleanses us and sprinkles our conscience clean and gives us a new heart and a new spirit. And we know him as our father. And something begins to change on the inside. Let's look at Romans 5, verse 5, about Christians. This hope does not put us to shame. It's cutting off into the middle of talking about the gospel. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Ah, here's where the hope starts. You can't live like that or your own strength. But when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into you and God's love, God's love is poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit. Like a glorious warm oil that begins to permeate and make all the rusty, cranky bits of your heart a bit bit more malleable and soft and moving. And so the Holy Spirit, he doesn't, God saves you. He doesn't destroy you and re, you know, don't want James anymore. We'll destroy him and have a completely new one. No, he saves James and he changes James and he renews him from the inside out. So we get a new James. Hallelujah. That's how the gospel works. That's why you're saved. It's lovely, isn't it? Renew. If you're not saved, it's all a joke, isn't it? I mean, in heaven, there'll be a John Groves who's redeemed. If there isn't, I haven't really, it's not really worked. Do you know what I mean? So you're saved and you're renewed and you're redeemed. That is the gospel. And you come to know God as your heavenly father. And strange enough, almost immediately, all sorts of things begin to happen. I've said your heart is for the love of God, your heart. Your mind begins to be renewed. And, and your values begin to change. And the things that you once thought were really important seem less important, and other things seem more important, the things that God thinks are important. And if you let it happen, that begins to happen. And he begins to realign your values and your thinking. You begin to be aware. Strange enough, this is a common characteristic. You become a Christian, and you're more aware of sin. You think, oh, blow, I'm so greedy. Or I, I, I honestly, I find it so easy to lie. And the Holy Spirit is just beginning to recalibrate your moral responses. And that happens. And you think, actually, I'm a long way from loving them. I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite nasty. I'm quite bitter. Well, God wants you to forgive them. And he'll teach you to forgive. And he'll bring you to forgive. I'm not saying it all happens overnight. A lot begins straight away. But as you follow it, he will renew you. And people you once hated, you'll forgive. And even... Yes, end up doing good to them. Because the, something is changing on the inside out. And it isn't rules. It's life. You must get that. And it's a work of the Spirit. And it's not that if I do all that, I'll be acceptable to God. No, he loved you when you weren't acceptable. While you were still enemy. So he died for you, loved you, the whole, did the whole deal before you had an ounce of acceptability in you. Now, as his child... He's going to begin to change you to be more like him with his spiritual DNA working in you. And as you work in the spirit, you'll find things change. Let's put this up. A couple of verses from Galatians 5. Galatians 5.16. So I say, live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Like, how do I deal with the flesh? My lust, my envy, my greed, my desire for revenge, my hang on to every penny I've got. Well, walk in the Spirit, and that will begin to lose its power. And the positive is in this bit, further down the same chapter. But the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is going to produce in you love. And then the rest. 
joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, etc., and self-control. Against this, there's no law. This is not in the realm of law. This doesn't work on a law basis. It works on a life basis. It works on a Holy Spirit basis. And Jesus is bringing in the new covenant. He's bringing in the kingdom of God. He's bringing in the age to come, really. He's bringing it in now, and he's saying, this is a different way. You've heard this, love your enemies. Sorry, love your neighbours, hate your enemies. We're moving that aside. We're coming, this is coming to change your heart so that you love your enemies and even do good to them. And, and, and it's going to be a totally, it's going to be like light and salt. It's going to be totally different. Let's look at this Ephesians 5 passage. This is all unpacking it later in the New Testament. You and me were once darkness. Once we were darkness. It's not that we're holier than now. We were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. It was a lovely way of saying this is how you live. You made a child of light, you're born again, now God wants you to be what you are. So you've got to walk in the spirit, we've seen all that, and the fruit begins to appear in you. And if you like, what's your motive? Find out what pleases the Lord. What, what's God's, what, what pleases him over this? How, is, how, how am I going to respond in a way that pleases him? You are special, be special. You are a child of God, be a child of God. That is the thrust of all this, by being filled with the Spirit. Now, when I was here last time, I quoted this poem, which I didn't quote at Central, so they got it this morning. But I'm going to quote it again here. The John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. Run, John, and live, the law demands, but gives me neither legs nor arms. That's true, isn't it? Love your neighbour as yourself. Don't covet your neighbour's goods. Quite hard to do that, to be honest. Better news the gospel brings... Bids me fly and gives me wings. Love your enemy. <laughs> Do good to those that despitefully use you. Bids me fly, but it gives me wings. Actually says, not to a pig, <laughs> you fly, but I'm going to turn you into an eagle. And then you learn from me how to fly. And that's what God really says. I'm going to give you wings and teach you to fly. And that's what the gospel does. And it makes us radically different. We have got to live what we are. So, how can this be possible? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the key, heavenly Father. You need to know him as your heavenly Father. That's where it starts. It's out of the relationship that the change comes. Not out of rules on the external, but a relationship on the internal. Let's look at the last screen. I know it's been a lot, but they're important scriptures. Look at this. To all who did receive him, that's Jesus, the hymn, to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, not out of their human roots, not out of their natural background, not of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. That's wonderful, isn't it, Bill? I'm sorry, I'm not being rude. I just love, I see my friends in the college. But it's wonderful, isn't it? Now... Your DNA is from heaven. And your, it's not your natural roots, all the natural stuff, some good, some bad. It's, it's who, who you are in Christ. It's wonderful. I've seen it wonderful. I see it wonderful in Bill. I see it wonderful in Jim. I do. And they're not perfect yet, but they're on the way. <laughs> but this isn't arrogance. It's not saying, oh, well, we're going to be perfect. It's saying, actually, we're rubbish. <laughs> but we found a God who loves us. And it's going to change us from the inside out. And a God who died for us in Jesus Christ and who, who, who redeems us. We're like this messed up, useless thing and we've been redeemed. 
He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't sort of like start again. As I said, he's redeeming you, cleaning you up, polishing you up. And you're redeemed. And we know him as our father. Look at the next verse. Because you are his sons, and you are all men and women are sons, because you come into the rights of sons through Jesus Christ. God sent the spirit of his son. That's the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ, the, the one triune God. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba Father, that's intimacy, that's, that's daddy, that really is. In the culture there, Abba was daddy. He calls out Abba Father, so you're no longer a slave, but God's child. Whew. That's, this is where it really hits, 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 you begin to engage the, I don't know, the gears. I know, what's an illustration? You know, you really, oh wow, now we're motoring. Because when you get that, it begins to, begins to work out. In your life, I'm no longer a slave, I'm a child of God, already a child of God. And out of that, since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So if you think that the Sermon on the Mount is just an uplifting collection of higher rules for living that everybody should aspire to, I'm sorry, but you're very mistaken and a bit idealistic and unrealistic. If you think that the Sermon Amount, because it's like that, is therefore something ridiculous, impossible, not worth even reading, you're also missing out. Can I encourage you, if you think that, and I'm saying it with love, you may need to meet Jesus for yourself and to know God as your Father, first of all, because that's where you start, and then you come back to look at it with new eyes. And I, you can do that this morning. You can do it afterwards talk to someone go off on your own have a walk and a pray you probably know enough by being here to know that what you need to do is say the son of God loved me and gave himself for me Jesus I want to be clean and new and I want to be your follower I want to be a child of God and you do your own work with God someone can help you if you want to and pray with you but you need to do it and that begins everything we're talking about as a Christian, and I understand a lot of us are today, we need to hit, let this hit us. It's not meant, I'm not softening it in the wrong way, but I am lifting it out. It's, this is not something to beat yourself over the head with. This is something to lift your vision to what it is to live like God meant you to live. You have a heavenly father. He's put in you his DNA. You're going to live out of your heavenly inheritance, your heavenly DNA, your heavenly fatherhood. If we use it a slightly different way, Jesus is like our older brother. We're going to, as it says in 1 John 2.6, we're going to live like Jesus lived. <laughs> you couldn't do that without the Holy Spirit. But with the Holy Spirit, it becomes an actual possibility to be changed from one degree of glory to another. But it all, all comes out of relationship. It all comes out of living to please him, knowing him as your heavenly father, Abba Father. Once you've got that, the real adventure begins. And the real challenge actually begins. But it is now a realistic challenge in a context of a sin-sick world. It's a big challenge. But we are to be lights that shine in a dark place. And that means when people are nasty to us, we're not immediately nasty back. We're able to forgive them and do good to them. Let's pray. 
let's pray. Let's pray that. Lord, I, I just thank you for your word, which I find challenging as well. I really do. Lord, I pray that we will all live as you called us to live. Live as Jesus did and love as Jesus did. Lord, it's so easy to live like mere men, mere human beings. Lord, that's our natural roots, of course. But you've given us some supernatural roots, some heavenly roots. And Lord, we want to live out of our future, not our past. I pray, Lord, you would help every one of us here to live out of our future, not our past. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you. May you just open their hearts this morning, Lord. May they just embrace you this morning and come to know you as their heavenly Father. I ask that in Jesus' name.